This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on now? That Your voice gets sadder and sadder every time you ask me that question. I know, because years. everything is just so freaking hellish. <laughs> Here's what the hell is going on. We've got a situation where now the effort to stop Donald Trump has reached a new low because we're now deciding that there are people and on the left and some on the right that we can just use the 14th Amendment of the Constitution to kick him off the ballot as an insurrectionist and that will solve all of our problems because Donald J. Trump is by virtue of his participation in the January 6th insurrection unqualified under the Constitution to hold federal office and therefore can be removed from the ballot and that'll solve all of our problems. So we're good, right? Yeah, yay. Problem solved. Right. Just take him off the ballot. And, you know, also, by the way, you should just add whoever you want. Right. Don't just take him off. Add whoever you think would be good. Your mom, your wife, your husband, whoever it is. Just go ahead, because that's what we really need. We need all of these officials deciding how our democracy should work, because they're so much more sensible than the voters. Well, you actually can do that because you can write in people. I've written in people on the ballot before. Yes, but you can't put, but you can't, you, the secretary. You, can't take, you can write them in. You can't take them off. That's the difference. I can't like cross them all. No, say, Mark, no. no, Mark, 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 Mark. The secretary of state cannot write somebody in on the ballot for you to choose. You, the voter, can. can. So, so the- it's, it, it's not just the government. Of, it's not the power that's held, that the Constitution gives to the Secretary of State of Michigan. It's the power to that gives to me, Mark Thiessen, to do whatever the heck I want with my ballot. Exactly. You have all the power, and they actually— And, that's, and the world power. would be a better place if I had all the power, don't you think? I'm not entirely persuaded <laughs> of this. But, but I'm willing to accept that I would take you over some of the people who have arrogated to themselves all of this power. Look, you know, I guess one of the things that this underscores for me is this this really serious problem of the prosecution of politics by other means. You know, people are no longer just up for office. People who, and, and this is, by the way, why we have so few people who are of the highest quality, who are running for office. Because the first thing that you can expect, the first thing is that somebody will go through your background, they will try to sue you, they will try to make you out to be a criminal, they will go after your family, your in-laws, and everybody else, and you will risk serious prosecution because people don't like your politics. Is that really a good way to run this country? Or your character or your personality or any, whatever it is. They just decide. And so they, I mean, they're waging lawfare uh, against candidates, all left, right and center. And now it's coming around full circle because now the Republicans are doing it to Joe Biden with the with this premature impeachment inquiry, you know, which, by the way, he might have committed impeachable offenses. We'll get into that with our guests. But 
boy, we're not there yet, <laughs> you know, but it's inevitable. We had two presidential impeachments in the first 222 years of our republic, and we're now heading to the third in three years. That doesn't tell you what's wrong with our, our country. I don't know. But, you know, we, all these Democrats who are wringing their hands over Biden's impeachment, it's like, what did, what did you expect would happen? So, I mean, think about just the things that they've done, you know, to with Trump. They, first, they falsely accused him of conspiring with Vladimir Putin to steal the 2016 election. We had a we had a uh, Mueller probe that went on for two years, spent tens of millions of dollars and turned out to be nothing more than conspiracy theory. Then they impeach him the first time over that phone call with Zelensky, which was horrible, but not impeachable. <laughs> you know, then second impeachment on January 6th. Uh, they got the hush money uh, charges in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, the federal indictment for mishandling classified information, uh, another indictment in Georgia for attempting to overturn the election, for basically prosecuting him for the charges that he was acquitted of in his Senate trial. And now they're coming up with a 14th Amendment. It's like, well, let's just take him off the ballot. It's like, you know, what Republican voters look at that and say, they are just in a not, none of this is legitimate. And in some, and we've written and discussed in this podcast some, here and there, some of these things are legitimate. There's a case to be made on the uh, on the on the classified information, but it's just a nonstop long before January 6th, from the day he took office, stop Trump, destroy Trump, hobble his presidency, make him illegitimate. And so voters look at that and say, you know what? Not only we are we going to put him on the ballot again, we're going to put him back in the White House, and that's what's going to happen. And who knows how that'll turn out? And so the Republicans turn around and say, okay. Now we'll do it to you. And so, you know, we we wrote a piece together in The Washington Post saying that Biden should pardon Trump in the classified information case. And one of the arguments we made was is that we got to put the brakes on this thing because next thing is going to be there's going to be pressure on the next Republican president to use the Justice Department to go after Democrats. And we're just getting into this vicious cycle of you know, prosecuting and every person who is our political opponent, the Democrats did it to Trump. Now, that'll be justification for the Republicans to do it to Biden or whoever succeeds Biden on the Democratic side. And it just seems like there's no end to it. And putting aside the persons of Biden and Trump, this is so bad for our democracy. Okay, but if I want to underscore for our listeners one thing after that litany that you said, as you have written and said on this podcast repeatedly, None of this is to suggest that Trump did not bring a lot of this on himself. Because I wrote a whole column asked, on that. Exactly, because yeah. there's, there's no question them the pretext about to do it. Right. No, 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 exactly. And I think that it's important for people to understand that Trump has made it easy. But that, and so have Joe and Hunter Biden. But that being said... But the, the fact that, that I walked down is, a dark alley doesn't mean somebody's got the right to beat me over the head with a stick. You know, no, he does, that he wasn't does, what he, Donald Trump did. He did not walk down a dark alley. He tried to subvert the election in Georgia. He has done a lot of very, very illegal things. I mean, again, it's up to the courts to decide that. But that's not the point here. I think the point that you're making, and this is really the question that we cannot answer, is how do we exit this spiral that is eroding our democracy? How do we get out of this situation where we are confronted in every single election cycle by lawsuits and constitutional cases and and efforts to undermine the will of the people, no matter whether it's a Democrat or a Republican? How do we how do we how do we get out of this? Well the other problem is that while the Democrats have been abusing all of our institutions to go after Trump, how whatever pretext he gives them to do it. 
they've also been using and abusing the institutions to protect Joe Biden. I mean, you had this collusion between the FBI, the intelligence community, the Biden campaign, social media companies to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop, dismiss it as Russian disinformation, which was not true. You know, you got the IRS whistleblowers coming forward saying that the Biden Justice Department repeatedly undermined their uh, their investigation of Hunter Biden. You got the attorney general then naming Weiss as a special counsel, which Republicans see as an effort to stymie their investigation. The guy who's, who gave him they gave him the sweetheart deal that that was basically collapsed because a federal judge questioned its terms. And so, you know, and so you've got the simultaneous things happening of the of the institutions being used to go after Trump, while at the same time, the same institutions are being abused to protect the Bidens. And so what you're seeing then is if you look at the polls, the Gallup does a, a annual poll of confidence in our institutions, confidence in all of our institutions has collapsed. The courts, the presidency, the even Congress, the, military. the media, even the military, even it's rough, but it's it's still it's still not like as low as the others. I mean, but but yes, you're right. All of our support and confidence in all of our institutions has collapsed, and so you're you're really starting to feel the fabric of our democracy tearing. And it's not, and everyone says, well, Trump is the threat to our fabric of our democracy. Actually, our institutions held pretty well on January 6th. Everybody did the right thing. The courts did the right thing. The state secretaries of state did the right thing, including Republicans. Judges Trump appointed rejected his cases. Mike Pence did the right thing. Congress did the right thing. It's like those, those things, are, those institutions held. But now we're starting to see tears at the seams of our, and, and it's as much the fault I'm not absolving Trump in any way, shape or form, but it's as much the fault of the people who are going after him and using and basically saying the ends justify the means to stop Donald Trump. They are tearing the fabric of our democracy apart as much as Donald Trump is. Well, I can't uh, I can't disagree with that. And my biggest question is not, you know, whether they're tearing the, uh, the fabric of our democracy apart, because I think that is absolutely manifest. My biggest question is how we are going to get out of this. I think I think John Yu, our guest today, has has an interesting answer, and uh, it probably one that reflects all of our hopes, uh, which is that you know we just need to get through one one more election, and then you know the Bidens and the Trumps will all be gone, and we can hopefully get back to normal. My fear, of course, is that no there is, that there is no normal exactly that there is no normal left out there, and and that that's that's very worrisome. And you know the effort to suddenly announce that that John that Donald Trump can sort of magically be excised from our democratic process simply by you know diktat uh, of of various state officials is completely loony. So we should probably get to our interview. Absolutely. John Yu, everybody knows John because he's a recidivist guest with us. One of the most handsome lawyers, I think I, I, I think he would like me to say that, one of the ha- most handsome lawyers who we have on this podcast, which has no imagery, and all of you are thinking, you're lucky stars, you don't have to see Mark and me in our pajamas, but John Yu is a former clerk. For Speak Supreme- for yourself, Danny. Well, maybe that's true. He's a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. He's the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. He's a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute with me and Mark, and he's also at the Hoover Institution. Uh, he's the former uh, head of the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department. And we have in our bio that his most most recent book is about Donald Trump, but his most recent book is actually the politically incorrect guide to the Supreme Court that he wrote with Robert 
Delahunty. It's not funny. I thought it was going to be funny, but it's enormously informative and I commend it to everybody. Here's our interview. Well, John, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Great to be back. It's always great to have you on, especially when we've got such fascinating legal uh, theories getting thrown around. There are some who are arguing that the 14th Amendment disqualifies Donald Trump from the ballot and essentially that any state secretary of state can simply just take him off the ballot, say he engaged in an insurrection and take that choice away from the American people. What say you? Oh, is that all you want to talk about? <laughs> just a minor, minor, a minor traffic no, violation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is, uh, it's interesting. This is, uh, you know, there's this uh, network, boring, boring, the most boring website on the internet where law professors put their draft papers. And so maybe if 20 people read your paper, you're very excited. This paper that makes this argument broke this website. It has like 65,000 downloads, the most downloads of any law, legal scholar paper ever in the history of mankind. It's the first one I've ever downloaded. So, that's for damn sure. <laughs> so this is an article by friends of mine, uh, a fellow named Baud and then another fellow named Paulson. I've actually co-written articles with Mike Paulson. Um, they're both originalists. And so they make this argument that the 14th Amendment um, automatically disqualifies Donald Trump from becoming president. And as you said, that anybody, any official in the country can carry it out. And so I think nobody would have paid attention to this. In fact, I feel bad. There's one or two younger guys who wrote stuff like this a few years ago and no one paid it any attention. But of course they published it at the optimal time and then it got picked up by Larry Tribe at Harvard Law School and Mike Ludig, a former uh, judge who uh, is a, was an appointment under the first President Bush and was considered for the Supreme Court under the second President Bush. They picked it up and uh, ran with it in op-ed pieces and media appearances, and now it's become all the talk. And even secretaries of state are considering to knock uh, Donald Trump off the ballot. I think their argument is 50% right and 50% wrong. The 50% right part is that this provision in the Constitution in the 14th Amendment is still there. It's still good law. It still applies. There's no, uh, there's no, it, there's no limitation of it to the Civil War, which is what its obvious first purpose was. And that means that if you do participate in an insurrection, you know, if you do give aid and comfort, not just participate, if you give aid and comfort to the people participate in insurrection, you're barred from having any federal office. The problem is, and this is part where I think there's, I think they're 50% wrong. I'm not sure it applies to the president. And even if it did, I'm not sure that anybody can just carry it out if they feel like it. So here's a hypothetical I put out. What does this mean? Any election official in any of the thousands of counties in the United States can just grab all the ballots and with a pen scratch out Donald Trump's name? I don't think just because they think he's an insurrectionist. What if we have people in red states who think Joe Biden's an insurrectionist? Maybe they have a crazy theory. But they said, oh, Joe Biden's been not enforcing the immigration laws. He's letting in so many people across the southern border. He's overthrowing the government as we know it. Could some crazy- Aiding and abetting an invasion. 
Yeah, could they, right, scratch out Joe Biden's name? This is what worries me about, and this is the 50% where I think they're wrong, is that it's a sort of this free-floating mandate for anybody to carry out what they think is the best remedy against an insurrectionist who they've decided is an insurrectionist without any finding by a court or Congress or the president. Well, but I mean, John, I think we can be more explicit here as well. It's not actually without any finding. It's explicitly that the case was made, right? That he was involved in an insurrection when he was impeached and he was acquitted in the Senate. This isn't an ambiguous question. This is actually a a legal question, right? Insurrection is a charge that you can make against somebody. And insofar as it has been made against the president in the case of his, one of his impeachments, he was acquitted by the Senate. Now we may agree with that, but he was acquitted, right? Yes, he was. So here, two points. So one, if I were, I agree with you, Danny. I think that the Senate, Congress could remove someone through impeachment and the grounds could be insurrection. And uh, the House did charge Trump with incitement to insurrection. They did charge him. Uh, the Senate chose not to convict. Although if I were on the um, other side on this, I would say, well, some people voted to acquit because they thought Trump was out of office and so he wasn't subject to the impeachment clause anymore. But I think there's an even better example, Danny, to illustrate your point, which is we've got a special counsel named Jack Smith, and he's investigating President Trump for January 6th, and he could charge Trump with insurrection. There's two federal criminal laws. There's one called sedition and one's called insurrection. He could charge Trump. In fact, I think he should if he has the evidence. I think that would be the best thing for the country is if the special counsel were to do so, if he has the evidence. Instead, Jack Smith has charged Trump with a variety of white collar crime laws, which are usually brought against you know corporate criminals and has right, clearly not charged Trump with insurrection. So again, Danny, you're right. Like, there are opportunities for uh, Congress for the executive branch to carry out this 14th Amendment provision, and they've all declined to do so. So why do you think he hasn't charged him with insurrection? Is it because there's not enough evidence of it or because it's hard to prove? Or I mean, because the January 6th committee explicitly recommended that he be charged uh, under the insurrection. I think it's 18 U.S. Code 2383. Oh, my God. Thiessen gets an A in class for class class participation. Yeah. I still don't know about how you do in your written examples in your essays. <laughs> well, I've got a body of work in the Washington Post. You are, you are welcome to grade at any time. I'll be happy to grade. But, um, you know, why, why do you think you didn't charge it with insurrection when, when the committee recommended that he do so? So the charitable defense for Jack Smith is that he's trying to get the trial done before the election. And so... The way he charged it is the easiest way to go about it, which is, oh, he defrauded the government. I, I, I actually don't think any of these charges fit or that he interfered with a proceeding of Congress or that he, the, the harder one, the third one, that he tried to uh, deprive all voters of their right to vote. I, I think the theory is that trying to connect him to the actual attack on the Capitol and the disruption of the electoral vote is too hard. Although I got to think, What other evidence do we need to find now? As you said, the January 6th Congressional Committee went over this in great detail. We have videos, we have emails, and we have a lot of people in the Trump White House who testified against him in the hearings. So I 
I'm not sure I'm convinced by the charitable explanation, but if it is the explanation. If he is rushing to get it done before the election, I think that's a failure because the whole point of doing it before the election is so you don't interfere with the political system. It's, a, it's inevitable that what he does before the election is going to interfere with the election. I, I would want him to be much more careful and thorough. And if Trump can be charged for insurrection, he should bring those charges, even if it requires going after the election. But that's what people think, that people think he's just rushing to get the easiest charge done that he can. So I want to just come back to this extraordinarily popular, nerdy, constitutional law review article by Bodden and Paulson. These are serious guys there, and, and, they're, and they're not lefties either, right? These are not never Trumpers or, you know, random weirdos. They're not even, they're not, even, <laughs> though, even though Larry Tribe agrees with them, um, they're not actually Larry Tribes, right? We should not besmirch yeah, them with that sort of overtly political twisting of the law that is his specialty. But le- can you tell our listeners about their argument? Because when I read this, it, you get you get swept away with, you know, it's long and it's kind of complicated. But I just, I don't really understand how they think this works in practical terms, other than for Donald Trump, sort of, you know, they have this one guy. Um, can you help people understand? Oh, sure, sure. I, I, and I totally agree with everything you said, Danny. These are serious scholars, distinguished scholars, uh, both originalists. Um, I uh, like a lot of the work they've done. Uh, so their argument is, if you look at the 14th Amendment, right, it says no person shall be a senator or representative or an elector for president or vice president or hold any office under the U.S. who previously had taken an oath as a member of Congress, officer of the U.S., or member of state legislature or state official to support the Constitution. And so they say uh, this was obviously passed in the wake of the Civil War uh, because right after the Civil War ends, the South sent elects people who were officers in the Confederacy. I mean, they didn't take, they didn't realize they lost, right? They, in fact, one of the states sent the vice president of the Confederacy back to Congress after the end of the Civil War. So Paulson and Baud and Paulson say, look, this provision just in one fell swoop disqualifies all of those former Confederates. So they can't hold office, kind of settles the matter. And that's true. I agree with that. And then they say, and the provision is not limited to the Civil War. It applies to any future insurrection. And so they say anybody who was in one of these classes, was in the Senate, was in the Congress, or had an office, federal office, or even a state office, and they participate in an insurrection, they can't ever hold office again. Uh, I think that's true, too. So I actually agree with them halfway through. Uh, I actually don't understand the arguments people make against this provision only applying to the Civil War because it doesn't say it does. So I I think they're on firm ground there. Where they start to go off is to arguing about President Trump. And I'll I'll talk about why it may not even apply to President Trump. Uh, But then the argument that who carries out the provision, that's really what is, that's really the heart of the matter. Who gets to decide that someone is an insurrectionist. How, well, how do, and how do you define what was an insurrection? Was January 6th itself an insurrection? Or was it some kind of riot that, however bad it was, didn't really threaten 
the government of the United States. Uh, who decides that? What standard do they bring? There, I think the article, uh, you know, they, uh, I think they don't think hard enough about what you said, Danny. How do they put this into practice? How do we do it in a pragmatic way that doesn't, right? Let just like, again, any single county official in the entire country on their own start designating people insurrectionists and scratching their names off ballots. Their argument is the provision is what we call in law self-executing. It assumes that you find people who are insurrectionists. Anybody in the country can do this to them. And then they have to prove, they have to go to court and prove they weren't an insurrectionist. That's their theory. So, John, I have to confess to you, while I, you know... (laughs) As you know, I'm like my fake doctor status. Uh, I also have my fake lawyer status. And putting on my fake lawyer hat, I I have to say that I don't understand how uh, very serious legal scholars, which they are eminent, as you said, respected originalists, can believe that there is something mechanically self-executing in the Constitution. This seems to me, I mean, it's true that you read the 14th Amendment. It's not that long. Everybody can sit down and read it. But it's it, it seems that it it is predicated, particularly given the history, on the notion that, in fact, these people are recognized in some way and not just recognized by the New York Times or recognized by my grandma who lives in Iowa, um, but actually recognized by the courts as being insurrectionists or rebels, um, which is what happened during the Civil War. So yeah, you know, of course it applies beyond the Civil War, but it doesn't just have this sort of blanket notion that anybody can decide and therefore execute the Constitution according to his or her lights. And, you know, well, the shoe certainly fits Donald Trump, so that's right. I, I don't get how serious people made that argument. Well, it's an argument that has, uh, have a, has a long pedigree, and I'm not saying or associating Baud and Paulson in any way with uh, the people who defended segregation or the defended, people who defended slavery, but um, there were people who argued after Brown versus Board of Education that state officials had the right to interpret the Constitution too. And why should they listen to federal officers or the Supreme Court about what the Constitution means? Because they take their oath to the Constitution and they're going to do what they think the Constitution means, no matter what the Supreme Court or President Eisenhower or Congress say. And you had the same argument before, uh, you know, going all the way back to the founding. I mean, Jefferson and Madison thought that right, if the federal Congress passed an unconstitutional law, maybe state officials could try to block it. Right. And but it's constantly been rejected. The one of the foundational cases in our history is McCullough versus Maryland, right? Even uh, you know we, we we make everybody read that case. Even in high school, they hear about that case. I hope I'm not sure anymore. But and this is a case of the National Bank, and here's a you know the precursor to the Federal Reserve. Congress passed a law; they thought it was constitutional. Right? President uh, Washington signed it, and back then presidents used to veto laws they thought were unconstitutional. So Washington thought it was constitutional. And nevertheless, the state of Maryland tried to drive it out of existence because Maryland thought, oh, we get to decide whether the bank is constitutional or not. So this is a deeper problem with Paulson and Baud's argument, but it has a long pedigree, which is if any state official can go around and interpret the constitution at odds 
with what the federal government thinks, then you're going to have a real problem governing the country right? because they'll just let any state decide, well, we like this federal law. We don't like that federal law. Right? This is the same argument about why can cities decide they want to fight immigration law or help immigration? Right? It is the same kind of uh, centrifugal forces that could pull the government apart and we wouldn't have, be, have, be able to have a national policy. You know, we, you know, we can argue about you know, whether the policy is good or not, but I have problems when we start to say, oh, any state can just sort of interpose itself and stop federal law when it wants to. And that's, that's basically this argument here, because as you said, Danny, they're ready, the federal government's already right, acquitted him, acquitted Trump, and uh, federal prosecutors have chosen not to charge Trump. So Alan Dershowitz was on uh, Megyn Kelly's podcast the other day. Oh, that's and... a dangerous combination. <laughs> <laughs> I said something ruder than that when Mark mentioned it to me, but yes. <laughs> but, but, the, but this is fascinating. But first of all, he said he was offended by this because they want to take away his right to vote against Donald Trump. And he is offended <laughs> by that. He wants the right to go into the ballot and for the third time in a row vote no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to Donald Trump's presidency. But he made a really interesting argument that I'd, uh, I'd love your response to. He basically said that the job of the Secretary of State in a state is essentially, in this case, ceremonial, in that mm. the, the state parties have their primaries, they mm. choose their the candidates, people join the ballot, and his job is simply to put them on the ballot and let the voters decide this. And so what they are asking the state secretaries of state to do is effectively the same thing that Donald Trump asked Mike Pence to do, which is mm -hmm. to take a ceremonial position where your job is to execute the decisions of others in, in, in a ceremonial fashion and, and do the same thing that Trump asked Pence to do and reject the votes of the electors, or in this case, the voters in the states. Yeah, I like I that, found that I found that a fascinating <laughs> argument that they're essentially yeah. doing what Donald Trump asked Pence yeah, to yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, you know what? I know, I'd not thought of that, but that, that is, it does have the same feature of taking an unusual legal theory and using it to prevent democracy for the people's <laughs> choice from working its way through by a kind of unilateral action. That's true. It's very strange when, uh, you know, one is the party of democracy, big capital D trademark. <laughs> um, so I, so I agree in part with uh, Alan in that I do think the real answer here is just to let the election go forward. Don't try to concoct unusual legal theories, whether it's the 14th Amendment whether it's claiming Trump defrauded the government, like a defense contractor, to knock him off the ballot, let the people decide. I have great faith in the people's judgment. And, and to, you know, three years ago, they chose not to elect Trump, even before all of this stuff. Uh, where I disagree with them, it's not. I actually um, think, and of course, it's up to each state what the Secretary of State does. So some states, it is ministerial or ceremonial, as you put it, Mark. Some states, I would say like Georgia, as we learned with Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State seems to have a lot of power, actually, and influence. But I would actually say the vulnerable point, point is not the Secretary of State, it's the governor. And we learned this, or people were reminded of us in the 2020 election and then in the 2000 elections. It's the governor who, after the vote is taken, the governor certifies the electors and says, okay, we had an election, say, in Michigan, and then after a certain number of days after the election, the governor certifies the electors that were chosen and send, you know, sends those names to Washington. So if you were to take Baud and Paulson seriously, a governor of a state would be quite within his or her powers to say, well, Trump won Michigan, 
but he's an insurrectionist. So I'm not going to allow the electors of my state to vote for an insurrectionist. That's a violation of the 14th Amendment. So I'm going to reject those electors and pick different electors. I'll pick the slate for Biden. That's actually the more dangerous you know, use of the 14th Amendment, not the so you could say, oh, what if you take it off the ballot, Trump off the ballot? Yeah, you could do that. But I worry more about what happens after the election. You could have, or what, here's a better example. Suppose you're Kamala Harris and you're counting the votes, right? You're opening the ballots and counting the electoral ballots. What if Kamala Harris said, I read the 14th Amendment as not allowing anyone to vote for Donald Trump, the insurrectionist. I'm going to cite Trump's theory about what Mike Pence is allowed to do when I do this, <laughs> right? That's the more dangerous thing is this 14th Amendment could be carried out after the election in 2024 by all the right all these officials we know of now who are part of the election machinery. But then the irony of that, John, is that then, you know, let's say Gavin Newsom did that in California. Then Gavin Newsom would have done the same thing that Donald Trump did, which was uh, demand an alternate state of elector. Oh, yes, exactly. Of that's right. <laughs> making him an insurrectionist and therefore in, valid to be the governor of California. Well, you know what? This would uh, <laughs> this you know, applies to uh, local and state <laughs> officials, too, doesn't it? Yeah. The funny thing is, uh, if this all circles back, because I think I've never found the documents, but I've always thought that the people who first thought of this idea of having the vice president reject one set of electors and pick another comes from 2000. I think there were liberals who were urging this course on Al Gore to reject the Florida electors. And to, but uh, that's right. Uh, yeah, that's, I, th- I mean, there's a gossip that that's where this idea was really first seriously floated and Al Gore rejected the idea as did Mike Pence. Right. One way that we are now used to these things being resolved is of course, a court case. Yeah, and, the so, and so actually, um, you know, while these sort of sterile legal conversations take place about what's right and what's wrong and what and who can do what, there have now been two lawsuits filed based on the 14th Amendment. What procedurally happens then? Mm-hmm. What does this get heard? Does it get heard in D.C.? Does it get heard in that, that state? What happens? Explain that to us. This is actually a hard question about how it gets to court. You're quite right, Danny. I've seen there are cases by voters in different states saying Donald Trump must be removed. So uh, I'm not sure whether those cases are going to work because uh, the court, this is a standing doctrine issue. The court makes it hard for just regular people to say, uh, I'm suing on behalf of everyone. (laughs) Usually the court doesn't like those kinds of lawsuits. Um, the easiest way this would come up would be for, say, Gavin Newsom to order the secretary of state in California to say, remove Trump's name from the ballot. Then Trump could sue. I, I think that's actually probably how this will come up, is that Trump will sue to get his name back on a ballot or to stop some process that someone's going to use to get him off. Uh, but the way judicial review should have worked, would it ties to your initial point, Danny, in that what should have happened is Congress could do something or uh, the prosecutors could do something, and then Trump could defend himself and say, I'm not an insurrectionist. That's really the way it should work, that it would come up as a defense. And then we would have some definitive finding from some federal court uh, or Congress that could then settle this question. What's disturbing about this is the idea that, right, the phrase insurrectionist, who decides that January 6th was an insurrection, and who decides that Trump was connected to the insurrection 
under the Bob Paulson theory, or if you want to go the Trump looting theory, is left up to anybody who's an officer of government anywhere. And I agree with you. I would think the Michigan Secretary of State. That's exactly what the founders intended. Just to follow up on these two cases, I just checked. It is uh, Colorado and uh, and another group from Minnesota. Uh, does this just in your uh, in your sort of you know crystal ball? Do lawyers have crystal balls? Um, in in your in, in your crystal ball, this gets tossed for standing. In in your view, that's my guess. I think that usually you know, a single voter can't come in and say, I'm just suing on behalf of all the voters of Colorado. That's a hard case to make out. But you could, yeah, usually the courts come in as a defender of your rights. So usually someone has to do something to take your right away. So that's why I'm thinking. Now, the other interesting thing, this is something people are not talking about at all, uh, is that Biden could do it, I think. Biden could go into these states or the Biden campaign and say, I, why should I be running against an insurrectionist who's barred by the 14th Amendment? That you could possibly could see how because candidates usually have the right to sue to have a fair election. And I'm wondering that let's why not put the onus on the Biden administration, as you said, Dane, which has refused to prosecute Trump for insurrection. Is his reelection campaign going to go state by state and demand that Trump be taken off the ballot? They I think they could get into court. Well, I think your 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 friends who wrote this law review article uh, really ought to hire lawyers themselves, because apparently coming up with outlandish and bad legal advice is now a criminal act, <laughs> as we're seeing in Georgia, right? Where we got lawyers being prosecuted for giving bad legal advice or coming up with crazy legal theories. So apparently, people people ought to be careful on this side because what comes around goes around. Uh, you, you, know, you know, as, as, you, as you may know, Mark, I'm uh, and Danny, I'm uh, I've been called as an expert witness in the John Eastman trial in California to be disbarred. Um, and so, yeah, we could talk some more about that. Can I just make one more uh, point? I skipped in describing one more problem with this Fourteenth Amendment argument. Sure, uh, is that uh, it's not clear it applies to the presidency. It's not clear that it applies to someone who was president um, because the Constitution uh, usually uses the word president when it means president. And you'll notice when I read the language, it doesn't say, uh, you know, you can't hold office who was, you know, if you had been an officer of the United States who took an oath. And so actually the Constitution, it's very interesting. Repeatedly, when it refers to the president, it says president. And it, when it refers to the other officers of the government, like a cabinet secretary, all the way down to the lowest officer in government, it calls them officers of the United States. And so there's a really strong argument that this provision, yeah, it may apply to former members of Congress, and it may apply to military officers and cabinet secretaries, but it doesn't say it applies to presidents. And so usually we think we're not going to read the Constitution to disable presidents from doing things unless it specifically says so. I think that's actually a really strong argument that I think Baud and Paulson and tribe and looted completely missed. So here, here's another question. So, and this is just a this is less a legal question than sort of a state of our our world question. The people who are go have been going after Donald Trump since before he even took office. <laughs> who you know the Russia investigation and all you know you go through the litany two impeachments. I mean we had like what two presidential impeachments in the first 222 years of our country, and we're now headed towards maybe the third in three years. <laughs> um, you know, it's all in the name of 
rescuing and saving our democratic institutions from the unique threat posed by Donald J. Trump. Yet those same people seem perfectly willing to torch our democratic institutions and abuse them and twist them in any way, shape, or form in order to get him. It's like, I mean, doesn't this, doesn't this fundamentally pose a threat to our to the Constitution itself, that we have so many people who are willing to throw off, you know, reason, basic, you know, basic guardrails that we hold dear, as, as especially as conservatives, to just, you know, how, how does someone like Michael Ludig, who was seriously considered as a Supreme Court justice, go down this path? It, it, it's just so troublesome to me that you have this left-right alliance of people who are willing to just torch our institutions to save our institutions. You know, you know uh, Mark, I think that's right. Uh, you remind me of this famous uh, story that lawyers love about Sir Thomas More, and he's uh, asking his young friend, um, you know, who's justifying going after some bad man by, uh, you know, misreading the law. And so Sir Thomas More says, would you uh, do anything to get the devil? And he says, yes, I would. He said, would you uh, chop down every law, every tree of the law, the entire forest to get the devil? And so the young man says, yes, I would. He said, well, what would you do when the devil then turns around and faces you? What would protect you from the devil? And that's exactly what we're going through now. I think that people are so uh, right, out to get Trump that they're willing to right, distort our laws and our constitutional system. And it's going to have a much longer lasting impact on our country than just getting Donald Trump. So look at impeachment. Hasn't impeachment now been defined down? How can people who are supporting Biden say that what McCarthy is doing is somehow inappropriate when all he's doing is what Nancy Pelosi did in terms of starting off the impeachment investigation without a vote of the House? Uh, what's going to have? How can people complain about the special counsel that's being appointed for Hunter Biden after the special counsels that were all appointed for President Trump? So I think you're right, Mark. It's just uh, if you're going to distort the legal system to get Trump, those distortions remain permanent. They're not going to be, you know, a ticket for one ride only. And that's going to, you know, again, I think it's going to undermine our democracy by causing the legal system to be used as a political weapon now more and more. I actually, first of all, I agree with everything you just said. I think, though, that if you asked these people, the Mike Ludigs and the boards and, and, and all the rest of them who are making these constitutional arguments, they would say no. To the contrary, we're trying to protect the country by keeping him out of the political system. And not only that, we're trying to protect the Republican Party by ensuring that he can't be the candidate so that a good candidate will run against Joe Biden and defeat him and bring the country back to normalcy. So I think if you, and again, you know, I'm not one of them, but I think that I'm, I'm sure that in their own minds, they see themselves as a, as a vanguard protecting the country. But I think you're, you're exactly right. The problem is that these are not one-shot deals. This is not just, you know, a, a one ticket to paradise. This is, this is what everybody can use. And apropos of that, I want to talk to you about the, the Biden impeachment. Forget about all of this stuff we've just talked about for a second. Do you think, and we understand why McCarthy got cornered into doing it, and we understand why, and he probably actually didn't believe it was necessary. It's probably also detrimental to the political cause of defeating Joe Biden uh, that, that it becomes an impeachment. 
but do you think that the charges rose to the level where they should where they should have moved to impeach him just on the facts alone? Not yet. I mean, this and this is the difference I think uh, between starting the impeachment and letting an investigation go forward. Uh, you, Danny, and you, Mark, and me, we all served in the Senate. We know how to hold an investigation, right? And we know one of the most important things is don't do things prematurely, right? You got to build a case. You got to build a case. You got to go through the facts. You got to interview the little guys first until you build a case against the larger decision makers. And, and we also know we, you can turn do an investigation. It turns out nothing bad happened. And then you know, you have to move on and make clear, you know, you're not accusing people of things they didn't, people of things they didn't do. And so what I, I, what I agree with, Danny, is that the, the implication of your point, which is that maybe the impeachment thing is too early. It's premature. Um, why not continue to allow the House committees using their regular oversight powers to continue the investigation as they have? They've been doing great, right? They, I mean, I think uh, Mr. Comer's investigation in particular has been uncovering amazing detail. In fact, I would say the only reason there's a special counsel in the Hunter Biden case is because of all the information the Comer investigation has been producing about what Hunter was up to and his business associates and all the stories we're now learning about the involvement of uh, Vice President Biden, all coming from the House investigation, not from the Justice Department, right? which was going to sweep this all under the rug. So I agree, Danny, the impeachment investigation is premature. And in fact, it gives the White House a really good argument to refuse to cooperate because yeah. uh, right before the impeachment investigation, there was no doubt, I think, that Congress had appropriate jurisdiction over, under its oversight to issue subpoenas and get witnesses to testify. And actually, if you look at it, there weren't really people putting up fights on that, right? Then uh, Archer, Hunter Biden's you know close friend and business partner, testified willingly. It'll be interesting to see what happens when they call... T- Hunter to testify, which they will. But as you, as we all know, you got to build a case. When you call it an impeachment inquiry and you don't have a vote of the House, right, there's a legitimate argument the White House can make because Trump made the exact same argument in the first impeachment that they won't cooperate because it's not a real impeachment investigation because the House didn't authorize it. And the Speaker doesn't have the right to just say, I launch an impeachment author- investigation on my own authority. And so that can actually undermine the investigation because now witnesses like Hunter could say, yeah, I'm not showing up. This is not a real investigation anymore. Uh, And then the Justice Department, unfortunately, is the one that pursues people for contempt of Congress for not showing up. What if the Justice Department now says, well, we're not going to prosecute anybody who refuses to testify, refuses to hand over documents because there was no vote of the House. So this is not a real impeachment investigation. So I think right now it could very well backfire on the House, not just politically, but legally, and actually make it harder now to investigate whether there was this level of corruption with Hunter, and whether there was influence peddling, whether foreign governments were bribing their way into the Obama administration or even into the Biden administration. Uh, what do you think of the investigation so far? I mean, do you think that there eventually would be a case for impeachment? Because, you know, Eddie, you, you keep seeing in the media, there's no evidence. It's not no compelling evidence. There's no evidence that Joe Biden uh, benefited in any way from his son's business dealings. I mean, if I if I was going to bribe Joe Biden, I probably wouldn't write a check to Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. for half a million dollars and send it to him to deposit into his bank account. I would give it to his son. 
I'd pay for his kid's college tuition uh, or his grandchildren's college tuition. Or I'd, you know, I'd, I'd, there's a thousand. You're never going to find a a the smoking gun where there's a direct cash transfer from a Ukrainian bank account to Joseph Biden's bank account. You know, it sounds but it, there sounds like this, they've uncovered a lot that is damning. I agree. I think the investigations so far have been doing a really good job. I, I wish on the behalf of the country they weren't finding all this stuff because I wish our president wasn't doing all these things. I mean, it would be great if he was squeaky clean, but he's not. And uh, you're right that people could say, oh, uh, Biden, there's no evidence at all that Biden benefited. But the standard before was there's no evidence at all that Biden knew anything. And the standard before that, there was no standard, there was no evidence before that Biden had any uh, involvement, uh, right? So the goalposts have been changing. But here's where the impeachment issue comes in. This is actually an interesting constitutional issue. Um, what if all this stuff happens before Biden's president? Does any of it count towards an impeachment? You may recall oh. that Trump survives, you know, Trump made the claim, interestingly, and I think it worked, was after January 20th, 2021, he was no longer president. The impeachment clause didn't apply to him anymore because he wasn't in office. Biden, the constitutional issue that's interesting here is a lot of the stuff we're talking about is about things Biden did either as vice president or when he was a private citizen. How does the impeachment clause reach backwards to cover things he did when he wasn't in office? The impeachment clause is about getting people out of office Right for committing high crimes and misdemeanors, treason or bribery, presumably when they're in office. So here's how I do think it works. And it's interesting, and it actually it's very bad for Hunter. So I think like the Justice Department prosecutions of Hunter is going to be inversely proportional to the impeachment in this sense. The better deal Hunter gets, the more he gets away with stuff, the more you have a claim that there's been obstruction of justice. Right, the more you have a claim that something funny has gone on with the White House or the Justice Department, the more Hunter gets these, you know, especially generous, in fact, unprecedented plea bargains. And so, what the Biden administration is going to have to do to prove there's no obstruction of justice is to really hammer Hunter now. Right, they got to hold him up, make an example of him to show that they are not messing around with the administration of justice. That's absolutely fascinating. So I have an exit question. Um, okay, we've got people in Colorado suing somebody under the 14th Amendment, people in Minnesota suing somebody. It's a word of stage where, and anybody can declare, you know, I think uh, Donald Trump is an insurrectionist and therefore he can't be on the ballot. We've got, you know, the 98th uh, impeachment trial going on in the, in the House. How does this end? How do we get out of this spiral of suit, countersuit, the the weaponization of law to uh, change political outcomes? How do, how do we, where does it end? So my, I think my uh, ideal solution, which may not well happen, is that none of these cases get to verdict and we just have an up and down election on the merits and that Trump wins or loses not influenced by these prosecutions. So in a weird way, I actually uh, want Trump to fully explore all his defenses and get the rights we give to all those accused who are presumed innocent before proven guilty and get these things delayed so that the normal democratic process can take place. It, it goes to your question, your point, Danny, about why are all, and Mark's point too, why are all these Republicans, all these professors, all these officials, 
Why are they so worried about letting the people have an up and down vote on Trump? They already had it in 2020 and in a way in 2018 and 2022, and the democracy rejected Trump <laughs> repeatedly. Why do they lack such confidence in the American people to make their judgment again? Now, maybe that's you guys. I know you guys were talking about this on your earlier episodes. Maybe it's because they're so worried about Biden being incompetent that they think that's the only way to beat Trump now. Uh, or, you know, they could just put up a different candidate. Wouldn't the solution to all of these problems be what 70 percent of the American people want, which is something other than a Trump-Biden rematch? That would just solve all of these issues. Yeah, right. <laughs> Take <But, laughs> Can we just uh, one, one uh, just uh, another uh, just quick answer to Danny's point is I do think that uh, even if one of these cases results in a conviction, it seems likely that one of them will. I think a lot of people, myself included, think it'll be the Mari Lago classified documents case because that's easy to prove. It's a fast track. It's just obstruction of justice, you know, telling people to destroy and hide documents or destroy videos. Um, even so, Trump has got so many grounds to appeal. There's not going to be a final decision by the election in any of these cases as a final matter. So, right? Why speed all this stuff up? Because it's not, it's not going to work. Let's just slow everything down on the legal side and let politics run its course. That's what I would prefer. And I think that's what's going to happen, actually. Well, John, we're in a world where every every standard is, is being cast aside and uh, we need to come around and defend the Constitution. And you're, you're just a, uh, a great person who does that every day with your work, uh, both in government and, and outside. So we're so grateful to you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you, as always. And thank you for sharing your new book. The Supreme Court, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. I thought it was going to be funny and I was all excited. And it's really not that funny. It's actually kind of serious. It's a really good book. It's, it's just terrific. I have it literally, I have it sitting next oh. to me. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Oh, wow. I see it. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah. So anyway, I really appreciate well. it. And for the record, for the record, I'm a much better looking guy than Jonathan Turley. Oh, I demand. <laughs> <laughs> next time I get to be on with Turley. There's no question. We will. The next time we have him on, we will ask him what he thinks of that. Yeah, es más macho. Take care. Thanks again, John. You're the best. Take care, John. Thank you. So, Danny, what did you think? So, I watched Kevin McCarthy announce, contrary to everything that he had said, that without any vote, they were going. To open impeachment proceedings into into Joe Biden. And I got to say, I know why he had to do it. I understand why he had to do it. But I think it was a huge mistake. I think it, it basically hands the Democrats and the White House a ready-made argument that they've already rolled out, which is that this is nothing other than a political prosecution. And uh, it's going to mean that all of the noise and fury is going to be around the process of impeachment itself and not on the details of the extraordinary, the shocking case of what Vice President Joe Biden did with his son to earn a whole bunch of money from a whole lot of creeps. Yep. I mean, there was a lot of money sloshing around and the House has done a outstanding job of unearthing a lot of facts, bringing a lot of witnesses forward like Devin Archer, 
you know, and Joe Biden's defense has gone from I never discussed my son's business dealings to I never discussed my son's business dealings at the 20 dinners and conference calls that I did with his foreign clients. <laughs> you know, it, it, the, 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 the goalposts, as John says, keep sh shifting and eventually they could run into uh, impeachment territory. Could be uh, the, the fascinating argument John raises about whether of, uh, he could be impeached for things he did before as vice president, though I didn't get a chance to ask John, but I wonder, could he be impeached as vice president after he left office since we were able to impeach Donald Trump after he left office? So they set that precedent. So there's lots of lots of new uh, constitutional ground to, to be sown here. But uh, they should have just kept going with the investigation because it was actually working and it was focused on the facts. And now we've got this sideshow. And here's the interesting question, Danny. So once you start an impeachment inquiry, it ends in two ways. Either they have articles of impeachment or they de facto clear him. And this will be a fascinating question because I don't know that a lot of the moderate Republicans who are in Biden plus districts want to vote for articles of impeachment, which is why they didn't have a vote to do this. And so they could be running themselves into a cul-de-sac now where they don't have the votes to have articles of impeachment, but they could, if they don't pass articles of impeachment, they've effectively cleared Joe Biden of wrongdoing. Yeah, no, it's a shit show from hell. That's what this is. And, you know, but it's like everything, you know, they can't, I mean, uh, the, the, this, this week, uh, that we're recording the house pulled down, uh, pulled down defense appropriations. Uh, they put it out on the floor for a vote and they didn't have the votes to pass it. You know, this is, these are such dysfunctional organizations there. And, and the, the, the fringy people on both the left and the right are so impatient, you know, let's impeach him now. Let's impeach Trump now. Let's impeach Biden now, you know, do your freaking jobs, pass some bills, Get our budget in place. Don't shut down the government. Don't impeach everybody you hate. Investigate their crimes. Decide whether they rise to the correct standard. Be serious people. I just look at the House of Representatives and to a lesser extent the Senate and I just say, oh my God, where have all the freaking adults gone? Um, they're not there. You know, the ones that are there are, especially in the Senate, are looking and say, as, as Mitch McConnell said, uh, the House doesn't need my advice on how to run the House. <laughs> So, yeah, right. You know, but like, as Mitt Romney said, you know, I I don't know if there's a place for me here. You're right, Mitt, because you're going to be really old. But also, is there is there a place for serious grownups who just want to do the business of the people that they were elected for? That is the that is the the challenge here, and it is a bipartisan slam. This isn't a sin of Republicans or a sin of Democrats. This is a sin of our politicians at this moment. I just want the grownups to come back. Let's impeach them all, Danny. Yes, that's correct. Let's impeach them all. Better still, let's find a clause in the Constitution that says that they're all illegitimate, and then you and I will make all the decisions. I think that is a fine way to run our country. I think we should. I think we should implement this plan as soon as possible. Absolutely. Until next week, when we will be taking over absolutely everything. Take care, <laughs> folks. <laughs> See you next week. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.